the Teachers College we had uh, one lecturer who uh, was well known in the community, the photograph of him appears here on the screen behind me, David Parkin, who was at the time the coach of the AFL team Carlton. And let me tell you, if Carlton had a win on the weekend, it was a pleasure to be in his class. If Carlton was beaten over the weekend, it was less than a pleasure to be in his class on Monday. He was a guy who had a gift of being able to inspire. And I have a, a, a visual image of him that was transmitted over the television at one stage of him at three-quarter time in the middle of his players during a game when they uh, were losing. And he was absolutely giving it to them. I cannot replicate in my own uh, capacity uh, what he looked like in that moment. A little bit like what he looked like here on that photograph, which is why I chose that one. But he was remonstrating with them and inspiring them and, and the veins on his neck looked like they were about to pop out, you know. He was, he was in stroke territory kind of stuff, you know, heart attack material. But there were times too when in, uh, in the lecture theatre or, or in our classes he would be just the same but he had this amazing capacity to get alongside and bring the best out of an individual, which I guess is in a sense the qualities of a good coach, isn't it? And I wanted to talk just for a moment about that because this, uh, last week when uh, Matt was speaking, he walked us through 1 Peter chapter 2. We're spending a little bit of time looking through the book of 1 Peter and we're continuing there today. Matt spoke about um, a passage where Peter reminded the Christians that he was writing to, Christians who were trying to figure out how do we live in this community that is increasingly antagonistic towards us. And one of the core messages that Matt brought for us was this, uh, and Peter communicated this to the Christian church, is if you want to live in the community with integrity, you've got to be like Jesus. In fact, the phrase that Matt used was, you need to be little Jesuses. Now, I found that just a little uh, cringeworthy in a way. But actually, as I thought about it through the week, I thought, well, there's some truth in that, isn't there? If we want to live lives of transparency and integrity of Christians, as Christians, then we need to reflect the life of Jesus. We need to be just like Jesus. And that sounds terrific. I mean, you know, we could... We could build a whole sermon. In fact, we are going to build a whole sermon around what that means. And, and being like Jesus sounds like something we should aspire to and we ought to aspire to and it comes with some really nice things about it, doesn't it? You know, we can be like Jesus being compassionate and be like Jesus in being kind and be like Jesus in being influential and be like Jesus in speaking the truth and be like Jesus in speaking prophetically into people's lives and be like Jesus in lots of ways, but there's a catch. And the catch that we're going to come to in the passage this morning is this one, and that is if we're going to be like Jesus as we are called to be, we're going to have to join Jesus in the more unpleasant, the less savoury elements of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be like Jesus in his suffering to be like Jesus in experiencing rejection, to be like Jesus in being persecuted by those around us because that was the experience of Jesus. In the passage that we're going to look at this morning, 
Peter does go on to say that if you are going to be like Jesus in your relationships with the community around you, then you're going to have to be prepared to suffer in the way that Jesus suffered. Now, I want to say uh, from the outset this morning that the message of this passage is not a popular message in the Christian church today at least in some branches of the church, because there's this popular notion in some branches of the Christian church that if I'm a follower of Jesus, you know, to be a Christian means there's going to be blessings poured abundantly into my life, health, wealth and prosperity, everything will be terrific. God just longs to pour, my bless pour blessings upon me. God longs to create this beautiful wealth for me. God longs to bless me with a lovely home and a terrific family and, and, and ruddy good health and all that sort of stuff. And the scripture does speak about God longing to bless us in so many ways. But nowhere in the scripture does it say to us that we're going to be uh, exempt from the effects of sin in the world, which means that we too will suffer from sickness and disease and loss and grief and rejection and pain. One of the realities of our world is this, that bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to good people and although we have the promise of the abiding presence of Christ and peace which passes understanding, which basically means it's beyond our capacity or ability to explain it, uh, the certainty that no matter what happens, God is in control and a belief which says no matter what takes place in life, God will be glorified. God never, ever promises us a free ticket out of suffering. In fact, you could argue the opposite case. If you're going to be a sold-out follower of Jesus, if you're going to be a little Jesus in the community, then it's going to be difficult. Suffering is going to be inevitable pain is going to be part of your experience. Now I don't know about you but I'm not sure that I'd be a great car salesperson <laughs> because I've just tried to sell you something by telling you the negatives. Have you ever experienced it when you go and look for a new car or a used car? They point out all of the positives, never the negatives. And I want to stand here this morning and tell you, if you are going to be a follower of Christ, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be some tough stuff. There's going to be some difficulties and pain along that route. Uh, the good news is that Christ says he is with us through that. That might not be, if you're just exploring what faith is all about, that might not be the good news you've come to hear this morning. But I don't want to sell you something that is not true. In the Gospel of Luke, even Jesus laid it on the line saying that if you want to be a disciple of mine, you need to count the cost. I, whenever I read that verse, I'm reminded of a house I saw many years ago. I might have only been seven or eight years of age. A house that was, it was only stumps in the ground. And the grass had kind of grown up and the timber that had been put over the stumps had greyed in the weather. And I asked the person we were staying with, what's with this house? And he said, oh, the people building it didn't work out what it was going to cost. Ran out of money. And in the Gospels, Jesus said, if you want to be a disciple of mine, you need to count the cost. And so we come to a passage like this, which in some senses is a count the cost kind of passage. Peter actually would have heard Jesus say those very words, you need to count the cost. And so 
that has enriched his life experience and is communicated here through this scripture. We're going to read this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 13 through to chapter 3 verse 12. It's a fair chunk of scripture and there's something to be said for reading a chunk of scripture so I'm not going to shy away from that. But I'm going to give you a couple of things just to hinge it off. There's, uh, I guess you'd say, four areas that we're going to look at this morning. Um, So keep your eyes out for this as we read through this. The relationship between Christians and the authorities, those who govern. The relationship between Christians and those who have uh, some sort of authority over them, slaves and masters in the context of um, this passage, but we could perhaps broaden that and talk about employee, employer or whatever. Uh, It talks about the relationships in marriage and there's some tricky stuff in this passage about that. And the fourth point there, which is just about to appear on the screen, the Christians and their relationship to one another in the church. So you'll see these four areas dealt with as we read through the text and then we'll make some comments in relation to each that we take away as application for ourselves. But let's read the passage uh, to start with. It's 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 13... And it starts with these words. Submit yourselves... Sorry, we'll get them up on the screen so that you can follow. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people... But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight." For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, 
In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For... Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Well, there's lots to think about in that passage, isn't there? One of the first things I want you to do, though, is grab a pencil if you've got one within range and actually do something that I don't ask you to do terribly often and that is actually change the text in your Bible because that passage that I just read from the New International Version has a translation error in it. In verse 13 there, the very first verse that we looked at, uh, it's, uh, it's actually wrong. Now it's a big statement to say that but the original language does not say submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted amongst men it actually says submit yourselves to every human person the niv translators have made an interpretive decision and thought they'd link what comes after with what came before but actually the original language says submit yourselves to every human person that changes dramatically what the text mean doesn't it because now it's not just talking about kings and governors and prime ministers and that kind of stuff, it's talking about everybody. And so one of the postures of Christian life, one of the attitudes a follower of Jesus is to take is one of submitting to others and not just to particular others here or there, but to every other. And from here, Peter goes through and looks at a number of relationships, and we highlighted four of them, where that submission is actually to be lived out. That's really significant. We're going to have a look through the four of them, though, in order, and, uh, and start with this tricky question of submitting to authority. It's a question that people have kind of wrestled with over the years, a question that we probably haven't really given that much thought to because we have not in our experience at least, lived under some kind of despotic authority. But people, Christians in other countries, have wrestled with this over the centuries, trying to figure out what does it mean to relate to a king or to some kind of authority that is ungodly. And there's some really practical, down-to-earth uh, stuff that Peter includes here in this passage that is quite helpful and I'll just annotate a few of them for you. The first one here in verse 13, God has designed a world of order and the authorities that exist have been established by God. That's our starting points. In Romans chapter 13 verse 1, Paul said, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist, Paul says, have been established by God. And so even if we're looking at a crummy authority, we've got to remember that it's only by, uh, by God's uh, grace that it exists. And so the practical application that falls out of that is, is this. Even if we don't particularly like the authority as followers of Christ, even if we may not necessarily 
appreciate them, we are called to respect them. And we're called to obey them. And I'm quite happy to stand here before you today and say that in Victoria, um, our government has instituted some laws that I find quite abhorrent. And I believe that I am at liberty to work very hard to try and have them repealed. But for the moment, I have to obey them, whether I like it or not. Doesn't mean to say we have to like the law, but we are to respect them and obey them and uh, submit to them. Peter goes on to say uh, here in verse 14, the role of those who govern has been uh, given some boundaries, if you like, by God. They are to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. That's the ideal, of course. The reality sometimes is the opposite, isn't it? Because all too often when you get into a context where there's no checks and balances, those in authority, they punish those who annoy them and uh, look after those who please them. And so if you're on the right side of the ledger, then uh, you're okay. I remember doing... Uh, I'll be careful how I say this because it's a little bit sensitive. Um, I was involved in a wedding. It wasn't Trevor and Cathy's. I'll just hasten to say that some years ago, where um, one of the people there was very, very high up in the Zimbabwean government. She was very close to Robert Mugabe. And so, you know, there's this, this part of me that kind of just wants to say, so, how do you feel about that? Well, I didn't go there because I'd been warned. She was very close to Mugabe and would not have taken kindly to a criticism in that respect. The role of those who govern, unlike we see uh, in places demonstrated by uh, Mugabe and others like him, the role of those who govern is to treat well those who are, are worthy of being treated well, to reward those who um, do right and punish those who do wrong. That's the way that God has set it up. That's how it should be. We know that's not always the case. Jesus was uh, before Pilate, of course. Uh, you might remember that occasion when Pilate said to Jesus, don't you realise that I have the power to either free you or crucify you? But Jesus said, well, you wouldn't have any authority over me except that it's been given to you by God, a reminder that even bad authority God has given uh, to be exercised. It's not always exercised well. It's not always done in the manner that God would want it. It's impacted, of course, by sin. But God's still involved there. The third point, charges against Christians. If you have a look at the next verse there, um, in verse 15, charges against Christians... Whoops, I've gone too far. I've missed a point. Or I've got them back to front or something. Anyway, let's not get too worried about that. Charges against Christians are to be dealt with in uh, God's way. I think I've just left this out on the PowerPoint. If you have a look at verse 15, it says, For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Now this was uh, Peter writing to people who were struggling. And Peter said, one of the best ways that you can... Uh, repel or you can answer or you can address the criticisms that are coming or the persecution or the pressure or whatever it is that's coming against you is to continue by doing good. It's to continue to love. Charges against Christians are to be dealt with in God's way. You remember in the Lord's Prayer, what did Jesus say? This is the way to pray, your will be done. 
and preeminence amongst the things that we are to do is the Lord's will. Doing Jesus' will is the highest priority. Doing the Father's will was Jesus' highest priority. And Peter picked this up and said, no matter what happens to you in the world around you, no matter what the pressure is, your response is to continue to love. No matter what someone says, no matter what someone does, no matter how bad the situation might be, the right response is to continue to love, to continue to do good, to continue to do the Father's will, to continue to reflect Christ-like values because ultimately light overcomes the darkness. We have there on the screen, live in the liberty of submission in verse 16. Live as free uh, people but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. This is very, very deep. I haven't got time this morning to unpack that but uh, basically what Peter is saying, if we capture it in a nutshell, is this, you've been set free in Christ but that doesn't mean you can do anything you like. Live in that liberty but remember that liberty is to be lived in submission. Our world thinks that freedom means freedom to do whatever, freedom to pursue whatever I like, to do anything I like, freedom to cut loose from moral restrictions and boundaries. That's not the Christian way. Freedom is to be lived in submission to God and submission to others. And the question, I've kind of already flashed this up on the screen, a question that Paul did deal with there uh, through some of his teaching, but also in Acts chapter 4, um, and Peter also interacted with this authority may be disobeyed but only when the law they established contravenes the law of God. There's a big area. We don't have time to unpack this whole question this morning, the relationship between Christians and authority, but in a nutshell, uh, Peter would say, uh, where the authority transcends that uh, the law of God, then stand against it if necessary. Let's leave that there though for the moment, not get too bogged down. Moving on, submitting to masters. What does Peter say here from verse 18? Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. Sounds like strange advice. Why not slaves run away and get free from your masters? That would be more pal palatable to our ears, wouldn't it? We have uh, trouble accepting this idea that uh, people had to live in slavery. We're reminded, and I spoke about this just a couple of weeks ago at night, that uh, it actually was the Christian worldview that enabled slavery to be overturned in the West. But here, Peter's giving advice to slaves, speaking really to everyone, because if you have a look at verse 19, he speaks, it's commendable if a person bears up under the pain of unjust suffering. He's not talking just to slaves, he's talking to everyone. So some brief comments about this section. The first one is this, if God has called us to where we are, then we're to stay there until God calls us out. I had a conversation years ago with a young guy who was trying to discern what is God's will, should I move, should I stay? And I said, well, if God's called you where you are, you need to be called to where you are and you need to be called out of where you are. And that's the advice that Peter was giving to uh, those who were in that situation, in verse 18, the slaves and others, if that's where you are, serve to the best of your capacity where you are. He wasn't fermenting rebellion among slaves or discontent amongst those who might have had to serve in unpleasant places. He was saying to them, serve well as followers of Christ. Let the life of Christ be evident through you where you are. And the same 
is true for us. Wherever we happen to be, if God has called us to where we are, then we're to stay until God calls us out and we're to be Christ-like in that context. He goes on to say, uh, exercise respect in all contexts, whether you like the people you're serving or not. Now, to tell you, this is one area that I've struggled with a bit sometimes because there have been people that I've met in my journey who are just hard to like and hard to respect. But God says no. Jesus says no. This is not easy, but it's what we're called to do. Exercise respect in all contexts. And the third point, which I kind of smile at when I think about this, uh, you'll find here in uh, verse 19... Don't expect to be commended by God if you suffer for your own stupidity. That's a, that's a fairly blunt way of saying what verse 19 says where Peter says, it's commendable if a man bears up under pain of unjust suffering because he's conscious of God, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? You know, through history, some people have said, martyrdom, bring it on, you know, I want to be famous as a martyr. I wonder whether God just goes, what is going on with this person, you know? And what about the person who, who makes a whole pile of really silly business decisions and says, oh, woe is me, you know, the world's against me. Well, have a look at your history, brother. No, there's nothing commendable about um, suffering for your own stupidity. There's something commendable about suffering because you're being faithful to God. That's what our passage is saying. But not when we are just being silly or making silly decisions. In chapter 3... As we continue in this passage, Peter turns his attention to the marriage relationship and before we dive into this one, we have to remember that this passage was written in a world very, very familiar with hierarchy and patriarchy. In other words, a very structured family system with the, the, uh, the male at the head of the family, very much a man's world. But we also have to be really careful to understand the context of this passage before we make an application. It's one of those classic cases where we need to understand what the original recipients heard before we go and make an application ourselves. And in this passage, Peter is writing to wives who have come to know Christ and who are living with an unbelieving husband. And so the question that these wives were asking is this, how do I relate to this guy? How do I maintain a relationship with a spouse who does not believe? Now, there's a few people perhaps wrestling with this same question themselves in the context of our congregation. A husband with an unbelieving wife or a wife with an unbelieving husband. What, what is a Christian's response to this person? And one of the temptations that Peter is addressing here was that the Christian would say, well, this person over here is a dead loss as far as life goes now. Uh, yeah, okay, we're married, but we're not equally yoked, so to speak. We don't have anything in common. We can't talk about the things that I'm now interested in. We can't worship together. We can't do these things. What am I to do with this person? Well, Peter says, actually, if you are truly going to reflect Christ-like values you need to uh, be submissive to this person. Now, that word submissive carries with it all sorts of implications. It does not mean uh, being a doormat or kind of kowtowing to that person. Peter actually meant you are to fulfil your life in that role that you have as a wife 
or as a husband if we want to spin the bottle the other way and, and see it in both directions. You are not, Peter is saying, to ignore that person. You are not to look at that unbeliever and say, they're not worth my time and effort. Nor are you to nag that person. All right? You are to love that person. And in the passage that we've read here where Peter's directing this specifically to wives who he was writing to, who were asking this question, he said, how are you to love them? Well, let it be by the inner beauty. Let it be by your character. Let it be by the life that they see in you. Not on the outside, that outside stuff, that's just tears and fizz. That's decoration. I see a couple of husbands nodding. You got, now, now they're shaking their heads. You guys, you are in deep trouble. For the core of what Peter is wanting to say is this, if you want to have an impact on that unbelieving spouse, do it by the life that rises from within you. And let's extrapolate this, shall we, into our witness into our community. If we want to be effective in witnessing to the community around it, surely around us surely it's got to be by the life of Christ the fruit of the spirit of God demonstrated in us not by how pretty our building is it's important to look after our property and make it attractive people will make some judgments about that not by what we wear not by our seating or our carpet all those things they're important they make a contribution but ultimately by what's in here and husbands you're not let off the hook because in this passage, speaking about the marriage relationship, um, Peter talks to husbands as well. And he says, in a nutshell, I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit, a wife uh, does not want a Hulk, an Iron Man or a bronzed Adonis. <laughs> Hang on a second. <laughs> Some of them are saying, no, I got the opposite. <laughs> what our world says is this is how a husband should look like. What the scripture says, this is what a husband should be like. There's a difference. And a husband should be like this to his wife. And if we take uh, this passage and put some other words around it, a husband should be loving, understanding, thoughtful, compassionate, caring, respectful, protective and mindful of the needs of his wife. In summary, a husband... <laughs> I'll say that louder. In summary, a husband needs to be worthy of his wife. So if we're summarising this passage, it's got nothing to do with you know, the surface reading that we sometimes get stuck on is with this word submission and all this kind of stuff. This is a mighty high calling Peter's putting to the church. Wives, anybody, if you're living with an unbelieving spouse... Let your life be the witness. And husbands, again, I'll give you the hammering here. 
your wives want you to be loving and understanding and thoughtful and compassionate and caring and I'm going to be in real trouble because I've given myself no room to move when I get home today. <laughs> but that's what the scripture teaches. And then uh, from chapter 3, verse 8 onwards, uh, Peter speaks about the dynamic of submission in relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. And the same general principles apply there. If you have a look at verse 8, be sympathetic, love as brothers and be compassionate and humble. As uh, you remember the passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, it talked about loving deeply, Love that stretches out, love that extends us, love that takes us beyond our comfort zone. That's what demonstrates the life of Christ in us. Not this, oh, hi, how are you going? Good to see you. Oh, hi, how are you going? Good to see you. No, that kind of stuff. Love that engages with people. Love that is humble and compassionate. This is kind of interesting because the Greeks, and of course this was written in that Greek context, the Greeks believed that humility, humility was stupidity. Why would you ever be humble? Because in the Greek way of thinking, uh, it was all about bravado and courage and, and uh, assertiveness. But Jesus taught that it was humility that was a virtue and he modelled humility. It was Jesus, remember, who took the basin and the towel and what did he do with his disciples? He washed their feet. Rather interestingly, as uh, we concluded our um, ministry each year with um, the Bachelor of Theology students we were teaching in Papua New Guinea, it was, a, I don't know, probably 15 or 20 of them each year. We'd take them on a retreat. These were guys who'd done five years of study. It was the last thing we were going to do before graduation and we never told them uh, what we were planning. But as part of that, the faculty, myself and my colleagues, would actually wash their feet and it was quite the experience. For two reasons. One, uh, for the most part, they didn't wear shoes. And so, I'm telling you, those, they were some gnarly feet. <laughs> Seriously gnarly feet. They were broad, you know. The sho shoeless feet tend to splay out and, and they have cracks and scars and dirt and all that kind of stuff. No foot odour because no, no fresh air kind of precludes that. Uh, so it was quite an experience washing their feet from that point of view because they were, they were some gnarly feet. The other really interesting part of that experience was the discomfort because these guys, they held us in high esteem, you know. There was this, in that particular culture, this very strong sense of hierarchy and it became even more critical when I was the principal how can I let my principal get down on his knees and wash my feet? No, 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 don't wash my feet, not you. That's exactly what Peter said when Jesus did, isn't it? But Jesus modelled humility by washing his disciples' feet as an example for us to follow in, uh, in uh, being humble. And it might sound, as we read this passage, rather strange that Peter should suggest that Christians should expect to suffer for no good reason or bear up under hardship without complaining or to put up with circumstances, perhaps like those experienced by the slaves that he was writing to, put up with these things without whinging or rebelling. But he doesn't make these assertions without foundation and we just need to back up uh, a couple of verses to see why. You remember, I've spoken on, on this on a couple of occasions, um, Behaviour, 
And here we are again, Peter's talking about your behaviour is grounded in belief. Here's where the belief stuff comes into it, verses 21 through 25, because Peter said, if you're going to do these things, submit to rulers and masters and one another in marriage and others in the church, it's founded on the example of Christ. And in verse 21, if you have a look there, he says, to this you were called, that is, to these things, to this suffering, to this submission, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Linking us back to what Matt said last week, if we're going to be effective as followers of Christ in our community, we need to be like Jesus. And being like Jesus is that we follow in his steps, including the suffering that Jesus experienced. And in the face of suffering and injustice, intolerable circumstances, persecution or whatever it might be, Peter says we are to be like Jesus. This is what Jesus modelled. Endure hard times because Jesus endured hard times. He did it without whinging, without complaining, without seeking wrong, uh, without seeking revenge, I'm sorry, even though uh, he could have. In verse 22, if you come with me there, uh, Peter reminded his listeners that Jesus committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. That verse actually is a quote from Isaiah 53, which if you're familiar with the scripture, is a famous passage that speaks about the servant, the suffering servant. And in verse 23, Peter explained Jesus' actions in the face of violence and suffering, something that um, Peter would have been well acquainted with because he saw it in person. When they hurled insults at him at Jesus, Peter saw that. And he saw Jesus did not retaliate. When he suffered and Peter saw Jesus suffering, he made no threats. Instead, underline this, don't cross this out in your Bible, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And here, I think, is one of the greatest encouragements in this passage this morning. In the context where Jesus suffered, when he was under pressure, he entrusted himself into the hands of the one who judges justly. And I have to tell you that I found uh, this verse to be a great encouragement and a great strength over the years. A great example to us if we're suffering unjustly because there are times, let's be honest, there are times where uh, a wrong happens to us. We may be able to find redress through arbitration or through the courts or whatever. There's occasions when that's quite appropriate. But there will be times when things happen that we simply cannot address. I'm thinking of an occasion quite some years ago when a young person in, in town had a great deal of fun at my expense. He had an avenue through which he could poke enormous uh, fun. Well, it wasn't fun at all, actually. It was um, downright destructive at me, at my character and my integrity. And there was nothing I could do about it. It's a strange situation. I won't explain it all. Uh, but here I was with this guy who had all the power and I had none of the power. And so as I was thinking about this, what do I do, you know? I, do I find, you know, Lord, revenge is mine, says the Lord. Do I pray that kind of prayer? And I thought, no, that's not appropriate. It's not about revenge. It was actually about putting into practice this verse. Entrusting my life into the hands of the one who will judge justly. You know what happens when you do that? Suddenly you are relieved of the burden of responsibility to do anything. 
because God's got it in his hands now and I can let it go. And I was able to let it go. And I would bump into him from time to time in town. Uh, we didn't speak very freely after those events. Um, and I would think to myself, gosh, I hope one day you get right with the Lord because otherwise God's going to really... <laughs> I, maybe I haven't fully dealt with it. No, I have. Really, I have. But I don't want to give you the impression that I haven't. But there's much comfort and, uh, and much relief because ultimately we know that God, the judge of all the earth, will do what is right. And those who, who persecute, those who ridicule, those who put Christians up, they're going to have to answer to the Lord, not to us. God's got that in hand. He can deal with that stuff. He will do it better than I can, much better than I can. And it will be sorted out in eternity. I can let it go. That person has no power over me anymore because it's in God's hands. That's a great relief because otherwise it eats away at the soul. You're constantly thinking, you know, what can I do? How do I find a way? How, you know, it just goes on and on. And it chews you up and it's death spiritually. Let it go. Hand it over to God's. And it's good for us to finish this morning reminded of, uh, of what Peter said. Peter reiterated here in verses 24 why it was that Jesus suffered and it's a good reminder to us of the gospel of salvation. Jesus' suffering was not pointless, it was not without reason. Ultimately it was to bear our sins on his body and die on the cross and proclaim the message uh, that... Uh, we find here in verse 24 and verse 25, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What an encouragement Peter finishes with there. <laughs> this suffering of Christ, the suffering that we experience, is not without point or without reason. It's not unexplained it's it's all to do with salvation jesus allowed that to happen that we might know him personally what a great blessing